And so this morning we're going to be uh, reading from Joshua 7, which is in your bulletins, or if you have it on your apps or a Bible with you. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were rooted by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us, if only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that, the Israel, now that Israel has been rooted by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out all our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourself tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with a devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the, the Her sorry, Zer Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell him what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. 
they are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua took together with all Israel, took Achan son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, the place, therefore that place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. This is the word of the Lord. Need to make a few adjustments here. I'm a bit taller than the average person, so we're. Well, it's good to uh, be with you again. It's been a few months since I was here last. I don't know if you remember, but the last time that I was here, I also uh, preached a message from the book of Joshua. In that instance, I preached from Joshua 24, and uh, the book of Joshua in itself is is basically a story of of Israel entering into the promised land. It's kind of the climax of, the, of this journey that starts in Exodus, and they come, they spend 40 years in the wilderness, and Joshua is finally the one who takes them over the Jordan River and into the promised land. And there's a lot of great stories in the book of Joshua, but today we're going to deal with a very difficult story in the book of Joshua. If you've been listening as we, as we read this chapter, you recognize that it's a, it's a very difficult passage and a difficult chapter to preach on. It has some very heavy, some very hard things. And one of the reasons that I do choose to preach on it is because I think it's important for us as, as those who, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who believe in the authority of God's Word not to pick and choose when it comes to the Word of God, that we also deal with some of the difficult subject matter that's in there. And so today we encounter a passage that reminds us that sin is real and that the consequences for sin are very real. It's a passage that reminds us that God is passionate about his holiness, and that he will not share that place of honor with anybody else. And especially today, then, we're going to be dealing with the topic of idolatry. And there's actually a lot of practical relevance from this chapter also as we consider idolatry in our own lives. So let me maybe pray for a moment, and then we'll get into the chapter today. Father, as we prepare to open up your word, we recognize that we are dealing with a particular chapter that has some heavy things to say. And there are times, Lord, that we don't always understand exactly how everything fits together and why you allow something to happen um, with, with such devastating consequences, Lord. But we know that you are good and just and holy. And so as we explore your word, help us to submit our, our lives and our hearts to your word. Help us to have the humility to say that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. And so, Father, would you speak a word of truth that would touch our hearts and ultimately bring us closer to Jesus Christ this morning? 
In his name we pray. Amen. Well, a couple of months ago, um, I had lunch with an old friend of mine. A friend, he's a, a number of years older than me. Um, and, and one of the things that we have in common is that we've both had a, a passion for, for ministry in our lives. Uh, this friend in particular, he kind of went a different avenue than I did, and, and he worked for um, a mission aviation group. So for 16 years, he flew planes in the country of Indonesia, and, and he would bring uh, relief and supplies and transport people all over the place. One of the great things about a friend like this is that they always have good stories to tell. I, I think everybody needs a friend like this in their lives. And, and as we were having lunch, this friend told me about a time that he encountered uh, a man from Indonesia who'd been bitten by a snake while traveling in the jungle. So uh, th this man, had he was like many of the natives in Indonesia, he, he was traveling through the jungle one day, and as he walked, he, he, was, he was bitten by a snake, and, and not just any snake, but, well, also, I'm really creeped out by snakes, but he was bitten by a, like, like a boa constrictor. And so this, this snake not only bit him, but once it had bit him, it, it started to wrap its body around him and actually began to kind of crush the life from him. But one of the things that the man always traveled with was a machete, and he still had a hand free, so he was able to draw his machete, and he literally was hacking and slashing and, and cutting the snake off of him. And he was fortunate to actually barely escape with his life. It's kind of a, a gruesome story. But I, but I think this story actually paints a very appropriate backdrop for the passage that we're going to look at today in Joshua chapter 7. If you're familiar with this story at all, I think one of the things that happens is that we so often read it as if it's just a story about a man and his sin. We read the story as if it's just about Achan and his sin, but today I want to suggest that we need to look beyond the text, beyond just the chapter itself, and to understand how this fits within the scope of the Word of God, because this is actually a story about two kingdoms. This is a story of a battle between two rulers. This is ultimately a story about Satan attacking the people of God. In Joshua chapter 6, the story leading up to this, you have the story of Jericho, a well-known story in which the people of Israel, they just crossed the Jordan River, they, they come into the land, and then they come to this city of Jericho, this incredibly fortified city, and miraculously, God gives them the victory. And if you know the story, it's, it's this incredible story of the walls literally collapsing upon the shouts of the Israelites. And the people march in and they just take the city. But one of the neat things about that story is that we discover that the people of God were not allowed to have anything that belonged to the city. So they finally come out of the wilderness, they cross the Jordan, they have their first huge victory, and the people are not allowed to have a thing. Everything in that city, we're told, is devoted to destruction. And that's because God, from day one, he wanted to teach this nation of Israel. He wanted to teach them as they came into this new stage, into the promised land. He wanted to remind them that he was everything they needed. He wanted to remind them that they didn't need anything else. They didn't need anything that the world had to offer because they had everything they needed in the Lord God Almighty. And so everything is devoted to destruction, except, we're told, 
the gold, the silver, the iron, and the bronze, those things from the city of Jericho, they are devoted to the treasury of the Lord. And then in Joshua 6, verse 18, God issues a warning to the people. He says, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, says God, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Notice the warning that God gives. God warns them in advance because God knows the way that Satan works. And I hope we understand that today too, that God also knows the human heart. God knows the way that we tend to want the things that the world has to offer. And so God warns the people in advance before they ever get to this situation. He says, don't touch any of the devoted things, otherwise the nation is liable to destruction. He's saying that an individual sin here would have national consequences. And then we get verse 1 of chapter 7. But, you've been warned, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Why? Because of the idolatry of Achan. Now, so often when we talk about idolatry and when we talk about idols, we think of statues, right? We think of kind of these physical, man-made things that people bow down and worship. But please understand that within the terms of, of Scripture, an idol can be anything. An idol can be anything that you worship above and beyond God. An idol can be anything that you worship alongside God, anything that you love more than God. And I think the world that we live in today is not that different than the setting of Israel in that there are so many idols to worship. We have people who idolize their careers, they idolize their work, they idolize their wealth. We, we have young people who idolize sports stars, idolize pop stars. We have people who idolize vacation, who idolize freedom, who idolize image. But I do want to point out this morning that idolatry is not just a problem out there somewhere. It's very assuring to come to this place and say, oh, well, idolatry, we should talk about it because it's a concern for our neighbors. No, idolatry is a concern for us here as the church. And I would argue that often the things that we idolize are exactly the same things that our neighbors and that our community idolizes. Those are the things that our hearts are drawn to. The difference, here's the difference between the way that our neighbors idolize things and the way that we as a church idolize things. We tend to hide them. We want the same things that the world around us has, but we just don't want anybody here to know. And so I've titled the message this morning, What's Hidden Under Your Tent? And that's the question that I, that I hope you prayerfully are willing to apply to your own heart and to your own life this morning. What's hidden under your tent? What is it 
that Satan is using perhaps to, to draw your heart away? Or, or what is it perhaps that you're looking to for, for fulfillment and for satisfaction kind of alongside or maybe in addition to the Lord Jesus? What's hidden under your tent? Listen, I, I, I know I'm just visiting today. I don't know what that is for you. And the truth is that you don't know what that is for me. But this passage makes very, very clear that God knows. And I think often of the words of, of Hebrews 4, verse 13, where it says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that makes idolatry such a serious, serious thing. It makes it serious for us to consider today because we're reminded here that God knows whether we're ultimately living more for our career than we are for him. And, and God knows whether we're ultimately living more for our money more than him or if we care more about what other people think and, and what other people have to say than we do about what God has to say. And I think one of the things that really damages and, 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 and that causes a kind of a, a, a rot almost in the church is when you have this, this, this mentality creep in that says, well, yes, Lord, I want to serve you, but I want to follow you, but I also want to dabble in a few things. Lord, I want to give my heart to you, but I also kind of like drinking. I, I kind of like drugs. I like a bit of promiscuity. I, 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 I like to hold on to these, these, these things that have my heart. And some of you today, as I list these things, perhaps these are idols in your life. These are real things, but, but you don't necessarily recognize the seriousness of them. One of the challenges with idolatry is that we often, we, we, we recognize that it's serious, but we treat it kind of as if it was, let's say, um, a non-venomous snake. Right, if we're using the snake analogy, we, we use it as if it's a non-venomous snake. We know it's not good. Right? We recognize that this is potentially a problem. But at the end of the day, we say, well, it's non-venomous. It's not lethal. If it bites us, it's not going to kill us. And I think the thing we need to realize when it comes to idolatry is that the bite isn't necessarily meant to kill you. The bite is just meant to latch on. A boa constrictor never intends to kill with its bite, but it just wants to latch on, and then it will begin to wrap itself around your body. And it's just impossible for us to walk forward in our walk with Christ when we have idols hanging around our lives. And so tonight as we work, or today, tonight, I think I'm preaching already tonight. Um, today, this morning, uh, as we go through this chapter, I, I want to point out two things. I want to look at, at the symptoms of idolatry, but also at the solution to idolatry. And two, two symptoms from idolatry stand out in this passage. And the first is selfishness. Selfishness. Idolatry is often called the worship of self because when you have an idol, it's ultimately about wanting something regardless of, of what God wants or what anybody else wants. And, and in verse 1, we read that God's anger burned against the people of Israel, the whole nation, because of what Achan had done. And, and we read from chapter 6, in which God could not have been more clear 
that an individual sin would have national consequences, and yet Achan took these things. Why? Because he didn't care. It's not that he wasn't aware, it's that he was selfish. He saw these things and having them mattered more to him than the impact that it would have on his relationship with God. Having those things mattered more to him than the impact it would have on other people. And I sincerely believe that one of the most dangerous lies that Satan tells us is that we can have our idols without them impacting anybody else. That we can have these things in our lives and we're really not hurting anyone. And I want to say to you this morning that if you have idols hidden in your life, make no mistake, somebody is getting hurt. And in the case of this passage, we're told how serious the damage and the consequences are. You see, the Israelites, they've just entered the land of, of, um, of Canaan, this promised land, and they conquered Jericho, and we're told in verse 2 that the, that the next logical city is a place called Ai. And Ai is about 15 kilometers away from where Jericho was, so it, it was a good hike. And Joshua decides to send up some spies to, to check out this land, and they come back and they report to Joshua, they say, hey, not everybody has to go up to Ai. It's not that significant of a city. It doesn't provide that much of an obstacle. So don't wear out the whole army. Let's send two to 3,000 men. They'll go up. They'll conquer the city. And so that's what they do. They send 3,000 men to go and fight the city. And we're told that they're routed. They meet almost instant defeat. Their hearts melt like water. They're running for their lives. And 36 people die. And the blood is on Achan's hands because of his selfishness. That's one of the symptoms of idolatry. The second one that we see in this passage is much more serious, and that is that idolatry causes you to be alienated from the presence of God. Joshua recognizes immediately that something is very, very wrong in this passage. In verse 6, we're told that he tears his clothes. He falls face down to the ground. He's before the ark of the Lord, He's with the elders of Israel, and, and they're, they're like putting dust on their head. He, he doesn't know necessarily about Achan. He doesn't know about the idols, but this is what he does know. Joshua knows that just before, God had been fighting for them at Jericho, and he's not fighting for them now. And there's just simply nothing, nothing worse than being alienated from the presence of God. And you could hear almost the desperation in Joshua's voice. He cries out to the Lord. He says, Sovereign Lord, why did you bring us here? Right? Why not leave us on the far side of the Jordan River? He says, now you've brought us to this place. We've suffered defeat. As soon as the people of the land hear about this, they are going to come up. And he says, they are going to wipe our names from the earth. And so he's left with this question. He says, what then will you do for your own great name? And the Lord responds, but the Lord's response is pretty harsh in this passage. It's a stand up. It's actually a, a bit more forceful than that. It's almost, like, it's almost like get up off your face. 
The, the, the Lord is saying to Joshua, please recognize that the problem here is not with me. The problem is with you. He says to Joshua, you have sinned. You, the people. He says, you violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. You've taken some of the devoted things. You've stolen. You've lied. And so God says, that's why I'm not with you. That's why my presence is not among you. Because God will not share his honor and his glory with anyone. And I think the thing we need to recognize is that that's true of our lives as well. When we, when we are honestly serving and worshiping other things in the place of God, or when we're not giving him the honor and the glory that he deserves, then God's presence is not going to dwell powerfully among us. Not as individuals, not as a church community. It will have an impact on those around us. And this pattern of idolatry, it has always been the same. If you look at the story of um, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, I find it remarkable how many parallels are occurring between these two stories. With Adam and Eve, you have the same thing. You, you have Adam and Eve, and they're, they're starting out, you could say, this, this new journey. They're in this promised land, the Garden of Eden. And they, they have this amazing future in front of them. And all these promises and the goodness of God but God says, there's one thing that you don't touch. There's one thing that's devoted. You have all these things, but just don't touch the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And what does Satan do? At exactly the right time, he attacks. And he tempts. And he puts something before them, something that's very appealing something that causes them to be selfish. And so they take and eat, and what happens immediately? They're alienated from the presence of God. And, and, and this is the pattern that idolatry has always had and always will. And so then you ask, well, what is the solution? Well, I think, you know, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, we say the solution is Christ. But, but I do want to touch on a couple of, of practical things before I get to that. Uh, I think one thing that we learn from this passage is that when it comes to idolatry, it needs to be confronted and exposed. It's the only way. And, and that's exactly what God does. In verse 13, he comes to the people and he says, consecrate yourself. It's, it's a passage that says, get ready. God is saying, get ready, because there is sin in the camp, and I'm going to confront it, and I'm going to expose it. And I kind of wonder sometimes what that night was like in the camp of Israel. And I wonder what that night was like for Achan. Because he knew there was idolatry in the camp, he knew there was sin in the camp, and he knew he was responsible, and yet, yet he wouldn't give it up. He wouldn't give it up because it had wrapped itself around his life. And so God comes in the morning and God says, call the people forward, clan by clan, family by family. And as you know, they break it down and eventually Achan is chosen. And then he's confronted in verse 19. Joshua says to him, my son, give glory to the Lord. Tell him what you have done. 
Do not hide it from me. And now when he's at last confronted, then Achan replies, it is true. He says, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. When he's confronted, he confesses that he saw and he coveted and he took. And again, you see something of the pathway of idolatry. And I want to go back for a minute to the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we read there in Genesis 3, verse 6, that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing for the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She saw and she coveted and she took. And that is the pathway of idolatry. We see and we covet and we take. And God here is using one of these passages in Scripture that's incredibly hard, but that reminds us of the seriousness of this. And, and I want to ask this morning then, if God is so serious about idolatry, are we? Are we as people? And when you have a friend who's, who's really consumed with his work, with his career, with with all of these things, are you willing to go up to that person and to say, I, I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned about where your heart's at. When you have someone who's concerned just about their image, so much about how they look and what people think and what they say about them, are you willing to have that hard conversation that says, I'm concerned about you? Or when you know people who, who on the one hand say, yes, I serve the Lord God, that's, that's what I'm here, I come here on Sundays, and yet when you go from this place and you're with them, you, you see these things in their lives and these things that they're doing that don't line up at all. Are we having a conversation about that? You know, God is so passionate about his holiness, and God is passionate about his glory. And we need to ask ourselves, are we? Are we really striving for the holiness of God to be protected? The last thing and the hardest thing about this chapter is the final thing, that idols are not just confronted and exposed, but they're removed. They're removed, and this is where the story gets very difficult. We read verses 24 and 25, and we read that Achan and everything he has are wiped out. And we don't know exactly why his family suffers for his sin. It's possible, commentators say, it's possible that they knew the idols were hidden in the tent. It was common in those days for families to dwell under, under one tent, one large structure. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that at this important stage in the journey of the people of God, Satan had struck. And he had latched on and he was beginning to wrap his body around the people of God to try and crush the light. And one of the ways, the most effective ways of killing a boa constrictor is to cut the head off the snake. And I know that sounds gruesome, but in many ways that's exactly what's going on here in this passage. 
God has seen Satan come in and with idolatry take a hold of the people of God. And he sees that his intent is to wrap himself around the people of God and to crush the life. And God reacts with that type of severity, removing sin from the camp. And so Achan and his family and his possessions, they're all stoned, and we're told that a heap of stones is put up over top of them. And then the closing words say, and then the Lord's fierce anger turned. Now you say to me this morning, Pastor Hilmer, that is a terrible story. And it is. It's a terrible story. And perhaps you're asking yourself this morning then, well, where is the gospel in this? Where's the hope in this? Well, the gospel is that we remember that this is the punishment that Christ took for us. Because you see, the reality is that, that you're Achan, and I'm Achan, and we have stolen, and we have robbed, and we have taken the devoted things, and we steal from God's glory, and we steal from his honor. And we take away from the holiness that he desires each and every day. And because of that, God sent Jesus Christ. And he was brutally killed on the cross so that the Lord's fierce anger would turn away from us. Christ hung on the cross so that we would not be wiped out. And he came to earth and in his life, you see the parallels. He comes to, to institute this new kingdom and a new reign and the hope of a promised land. And as he comes to earth, what happens? Satan tries to tempt him. And what does Satan do? Satan puts all sorts of idols in front of the Lord and takes him to the mountaintop. And he says, you can have wealth and you can have power and you can have all these things because he's looking to strike. But the Lord Jesus is faithful, and he takes the journey to the cross. And at the cross, absolutely, Satan strikes, and he bites the heel, as we read in Genesis 3. But also at the cross, Jesus Christ cuts the head off the snake. And he crushes the head of the snake. And so we live in this life and we do struggle with sin. And we do struggle with idols. I do. And we have these things that try to pull our hearts away. But the Lord Jesus didn't just die. He also pours out his spirit. And we're told that he gives us the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so our calling as Christians is a bit of a messy life. Our calling is a hard life, and we are constantly, we're, we're drawing the sword of the Spirit, and we are hacking and slashing and cutting the sinful nature away from our body. We are, we are cutting that idolatry out of our lives, anything that takes away from the worship of the Lord, anything that takes away from the glory that is due to the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to really, truly deal with idolatry is, is to replace it with something much more beautiful. I want to close with the words of Hebrews 12, where we are reminded to cast off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles 
And we are to run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray together. Gracious God, this morning we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we come to this place, help us to be truly humble. Help us to be truly honest about the fact that that the heart of Achan lives in us. That we ourselves are tempted constantly to take from the glory that you deserve. And Father, we have the hope of the gospel which provides so much comfort. Even when we read difficult stories, when we encounter difficult things, we're reminded that Jesus Christ has crushed the head of Satan, that his power is gone, and that we are equipped by his spirit to fight. And we have a strength that we don't have in and of ourselves. We have a hope that we can't find in and of ourselves, but we have a hope that rests on the cross. And we have a picture there of victory. And so, Lord, as we struggle, as we see idols in our lives, as we see idols in the, in the lives of loved ones around us, Father, help us to be diligent about your holiness. Help us to be bold in confronting and exposing those sort of idols. But help us to constantly point to Jesus Christ as the cure. Father, if we just look for another idol, we're just going to replace it with something else. And if we think we've dealt with one thing, you know that our hearts will find something else. Because our hearts truly do not have rest until we find it in you. And so, Father, I pray that those here today, that they would find that rest in Jesus Christ. That they would find something that, in him that, it, that is just so fulfilling and so satisfying that they are at peace, having nothing else but Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.